T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. APA at a defense. Host control both autos. Engine and command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today's guest on Cosmic Perspective Radio is Jim Clash. Jim is joining us today to discuss his personal experiences as well as his experiences as a journalist regarding the history of the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Jim, thanks for being with us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on Cosmic Perspective Radio. Oh, thanks, Andy. Yeah, this is a today's a more serious one. You know, obviously, this is topical because of the Oppenheimer two movies that are out now and made me go back and, and think about some of the things I had done in the past. I'd always had an interest in physics, particularly nuclear physics. I was a physics major for a while at the University of Maryland as an undergrad. And I studied relativity and fission and fusion and the different bombs and reactors. And I didn't major in it, but I always had an interest in it. And plus, I had an interest in Japan because I had been born there. So I guess the first thing I did was um, I heard about the Trinity test, which is where they tested the first atomic bomb, the plutonium bomb. And that was the whole Los Alamos effort done by uh, Oppenheimer or J. Robert Oppenheimer and is covered quite a bit in the two movies. But there is actually a way to go out there see the site, the government will take people twice a year into the Trinity site through uh, the White Sands Missile Range Desert. And I think it's the first Saturday in October and the first Saturday in April. So I went and it's a very interesting place. You know, you see some of the, the tower that was melted, uh, very little left at the bottom from the blast. It was a hundred foot tower that was pretty much vaporized. You see uh, little pieces of, of sand that's been fused into green glass called trinitite and that was from the, the heat of the blast literally fused the sand to a green glass uh you see people you know i talked to some of the people one was a ukrainian metallurgist who'd wanted to go there all his life and you know i asked him if he felt strange about standing next to an american after the cold war arms buildup, and he said no i think people are the same everywhere and i, I kind of remembered that some people there look like they've been bussed in from Disney World. They had no idea why they were there. But I really enjoyed seeing where the first bomb had been detonated. And that was, of course, the test before they dropped the two 
on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Later on, I was able to um, go to Japan, and first I visited uh, Hiroshima to see what that city was like now, and it's pretty much all rebuilt. There's only one reminder of the bomb, which is the Gumbaku Dome, which they didn't fix up, and it, it's a reminder on one of the rivers right there, the three rivers. And uh, there's a, an atomic bomb museum there, which I don't know if your readers have been to the the one in uh, Washington D.C., the Holocaust Museum, but it's it's very similar and it's very graphic. And so there are um, some pieces of the walls that have been brought in where there's shadows from where a human uh, form had just been vaporized, and then there's a shadow left on the wall because the light didn't go through right away. There's um, all kinds of pictures of, of horrific. Uh, I mean, it just and so. As an American there, and I was the only one, I think, in the museum, I felt very self-conscious. But the Japanese are very polite, and they didn't make me feel uncomfortable. I, I don't know what they were really thinking, but they were smiling. Uh, I left there very somber and thought, wow. Um, I also walked over to where the hypercenter was, hypocenter, which is directly underneath where the blast. They blew it up around, I think it was 1,800 feet above the ground because it would have the greatest devastating shockwave effect. And so right under where it blew up, there's something called the hypocenter. So I went there and it's hard to find, but it's near this hospital that had to be rebuilt because pretty much vaporized when the bomb went off. 80 patients and doctors were in there. And uh, I just kind of meditated, looked up straight into the sky and knew that August 6, 1945, if I looked up there, I would have been vaporized too. And uh, I wrote a story about it for Forbes. I also wrote a story about the Trinity experience. And then the last thing I had done was I went to Nagasaki, uh, which is south, southern Japan, and uh, visited that city to see what that was all about. But I'd also set up an interview with one of the survivors of the blast. And he, I think he had been like seven or eight years old, maybe tw 12, I can't remember, somewhere before he was a teenager in he recounted the whole thing to me, and, and he saw both of his parents die in front of him uh, at different times, one from radiation uh, sickness, such his mother and the, I think his father's leg had to be amputated and, and it got infected and, and whatever, but a guy named Tagawa, Mr. Tagawa, and I do remember the first thing I said to him through a translator, because he spoke only Japanese, was... I'm very sorry that my country dropped this bomb on, on your country, and I had nothing to do with it, obviously. I'm too young, but I just want to apologize. And, and his response to me was, without even thinking, he just said, through the translator, it was war, no need to feel guilty or anything else. It was just war. And that kind of broke the ice, and then we were able to do the, the interview and he recounted the horrors, the, you know, the bodies with the dripping skin down, uh, walking like zombies, and the bodies in the river, people dying for thirst, out of thirst. They just were, clothes were burned off their bodies, the skin was hanging down. Uh, it was pretty horrific. And for a guy, I think he might have been 12 at the time, maybe, you know, younger, maybe eight, I can't remember. But for somebody, a kid like that, to see all that and take it in. He tried to do what he could to help, but obviously, I think that bomb killed a couple hundred thousand people in the end after the radiation sicknesses later on. That was Nagasaki. Uh, that city, 
has been totally rebuilt and there's nothing other than there's an atomic bomb museum, but there's no structures left from the, the attack. And the museum is, is quite graphic as is the one in uh, Hiroshima. But that was easier for me because I, I had to interview uh, Mr. Tagawa there in that museum. So I was sort of preoccupied with having to do something. But anyways, for me, it's been an interesting journey through the two towns that the only two towns have ever been the nuclear weapons have been used against and Trinity, where it, it all started with the Manhattan Project and Los Alamos. And then obviously the scientists themselves. And I've had a chance, as you know, to interview one major scientist uh, who was very instrumental in that uh, development of the bomb and who was at the Trinity test and described it to me when the bomb went off. So, you know, I have a bit of a history here, probably because of my physics interests, because of my Japanese heritage, although I'm American. And then to see the Oppenheimer movie, both of them, uh, it's been bringing it all back. And it, it is really a, a sad time in history, but in some ways, as Oppenheimer says in the movie, he knew he had created this incredibly destructive weapon, but that maybe that would be a deterrence for never having another world war and so far he's been right uh but i i don't know that of course we'll get into talking about the hydrogen bomb later but the a-bomb and the hydrogen bomb have never been used and and i don't know hopefully that'll be the case so we'll see i read your article about mr tagawa and his explanation of finding his parents dying shortly in front of his eyes uh to me, tells this sad story that it must have been for tens of thousands of survivors, not, not just him. So I have to say, uh, I don't know how you handle the whole thing emotionally. Well, Tagawa's had many cancers, uh, as you know, probably from the story, and they've been treated, and he was uh, 86 years old at the time I interviewed him. This was a couple of years ago, and he looked pretty damn healthy, but he had been through a lot, both physically and emotionally, as you said. I don't know how you get over that either, seeing your parents die in front of you at that age, and then also all the other people in the horrific condition they were in, and then pulling yourself through it. Probably there's some survivor guilt, which I didn't detect, but I think anybody who goes through that probably feels it. But he was um, very forthcoming to talk about the details. So, I, I yeah, I agree with you. I don't know how you, I guess... You know, you have to keep on keeping on. And just like in war, you, know, you see horrible things, but you, you just have to move forward or you'll die or you'll, you'll get depressed or whatever. So, yeah. And then when you see the museum, both museums, you're kind of reminded of really what happened. We can make movies about it and we can talk about it. But until you're there, I think it's like any war situation. You can't imagine it unless you're there. I have to say that, um, you know, reading the article, it explains what really happened. We see things in the movies, as you said, but it's very different than that. And I'm really surprised that he didn't have any kind of animosity towards Americans or, or you visiting or interviewing him. But it seemed like he understood that it was Americans or all of us had nothing to do with it. Yeah, you know, that's right. And I also think, and, and I know a number of Japanese, they never really show their emotions on their sleeves. And they're always polite, but you never really know what they're thinking. And, and I'm hoping that he was being truthful with me. And if he wasn't, he sure did a good job of hiding it. But yeah, he had a lot of courage to be able to. And I think another reason he did the interview is because he wants to promote 
the idea of never using nuclear weapons again. And so the more he can talk about the graphic details of it and get it out in a magazine like Forbes or whatever, the, the better chances maybe humanity has of, of not doing that again. And, uh, you know, there's a whole history about whether we should have dropped the bombs in the first place, whether we should have dropped just one, whether we should have done a demonstration of the Tokyo Harbor. And, and I talked to Teller about that a lot, Dr. Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb. And then, you know, in the movie Oppenheimer, there's all this sort of the scientists not sure whether that's the right thing to do, the military well. And originally the bomb was developed because of Germany and Hitler. And they had a very prominent physicist named Werner Heisenberg over there who Teller had been a student of. And he was in charge of the atomic bomb project for Hitler. And um, we'll get into it later with Teller, but he... He could have gotten the bomb first, and if he did, then I don't know, this world would be a different place. So, you know, we think about, well, what sh should we have done it? And at the time, you know, we were terrified of the German situation, and they were working on it, as was Japan, as was Russia. So because we're the most, at the time, the most civilized or most objective country, we probably would be better to have it first than one of the others. Um, doesn't mean we're good. I mean, we dropped two of them, but it, it was complicated. In uh, seeing the movie and reading your articles, uh, it seemed like the whole thing was very complicated. But uh, you talked about Teller. I feel he's one of the most intriguing people involved in making the atomic bomb. Of course, later was considered the, the father of the hydrogen bomb. You were able to, to interview him what, decades ago, correct? Yeah, it was 1999. He was 91 at the time, and he had a stroke. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to get. I flew out to California, Palo Alto, which is where he had lived with his wife. It was a pretty simple house. I remember driving up, and he entered the door in a Stanford uh, sweatshirt with a cane. He had like a staff, almost like a Moses staff, and very, very strong Hungarian accent took me, I don't know how many hours to transcribe those tapes, but we had a two-hour talk, pretty long. Again, when I got there, I wasn't sure what to expect with the age and the stroke and all that, so I had a suit on, I remember, very respectful with a tie and everything, and uh, he greeted me at the door, and, and we sat down. It was a very dark room, and his wife was in an oxygen tent in the next room. So she was sick. I never met her, but he told me she was in the next room. Uh, and then we started the interview. And I remember when I asked the first question, he answered in a way that I wasn't sure whether he understood the question I asked him. I thought maybe he was had lost it. Maybe he was just answering something else that he thought I said or whatever. And you know, I've done enough interviewing to sort of let the guy go and see what he's going to say. And this is Dr. Edward Teller. It's one of the scientific greats of, of the 20th century. And what I realized after I listened to him answer the first question was he was able to, if you can imagine like that twilight zone kind of circle, it gets tighter and tighter in the middle. It's got the point or whatever it is. He went around and he he was able to refute any argument you might have against the point he was going to make before he made the point. So he reeled it in and then made the point. 
And he sure as hell answered the question, but he left me no room to rebut him because he had already answered all the things I could say that questioning it. So that was the first thing. And then he asked me a lot about what I knew about physics and what I thought about Oppenheimer. And, and it was a an uncomfortable situation because he wanted to know as much as he could about me. He was a little bit paranoid, uh, obviously, with the McCarthy trials later on, where he testified against Oppenheimer and helped with the security clearance getting revoked for Oppenheimer. But he asked me directly about cloning, what I thought about it. He asked me about nuclear weapons, what I thought about those. He asked me about relativity and, and time and what I knew about it. And luckily, I had done a lot of research and I know my physics. So I was able to at least not let him down to the point where he threw me out. I just thought what was amazing is that in your article, you said he asked as many questions as you asked. And I saw them in the article. Like an incredibly intelligent guy, but one step ahead of you, maybe, huh? Well, I more than one. I would say of, of all the people I've interviewed, and you know, I mean, I've interviewed most of the greats, Neil Armstrong, uh, John Glenn, Elon Musk, Roger Bannister, just the great minds and the great people of the 20th century, Edmund Hillary. I, I never met anybody who was as smart. And, and honestly, those are explorers and maybe you don't expect them to be science minds, but but that guy was was really smart and funny. He was funny, too, at the same time. He had this real bore, like a, he would bore into you with his eyes and this brow that went across all the way, and that Hungarian accent, and it, it kind of scary, actually. I think the Dr. Strangelove character was partially based on him, which he doesn't like, but uh, I didn't bring that up, but that's common knowledge. So, yeah, he wanted to know what I knew before he would answer my question, because I guess he wanted to know what level to answer the question at or whether he could trust me or not. I would surprise me the most in your interview with him was that whenever I read or see anything in, in movies and documentaries about him, I don't know, he's kind of portrayed as this guy is kind of crazy and he wants to build this bomb. And, and he was very different than that. He didn't want to drop the bomb. The hydrogen bomb, if I remember correctly, he wanted to develop it because he's worried someone else would get it. Yeah, well, he worked on Los Alamos Project on the atomic bomb, obviously, with Oppenheimer and Leo Szilard and Enrico Fermi, all those great scientists. But in the back of his mind, he was working on something that he thought would be much more revolutionary, the hydrogen bomb. And at Los Alamos, they just needed to build the fission bomb, the atom bomb. It couldn't be branching out. They had to get that bomb in case the Germans got it first. So he was a little frustrated, I think, at, at Los Alamos. Uh, he did make some amazing contributions, obviously, to the fission effort, the Manhattan Project. But at the same time, at one point near the end, he just quit. He left. And Oppenheimer's a smart guy. He, he went after him and said, look, uh, how about I let you work on your super, the H-bomb, and then we, you and I will meet once a week. But he didn't want to lose him, Teller, because Teller was brilliant. So, you know, he and Oppenheimer had a bit of a stress relationship, even back at, at Los Alamos. And that later played itself out. At the end of the interview, we talked about it. So he was there and, you know, he saw the, the thing. And honestly, what they did, General Groves and Oppenheimer, was amazing in the short span of time they had to take something like that and make it into a bomb. They knew about chain reactions and, and all that. But 
there were two types of bombs built. One was the uranium-235 bomb, which uranium-235 is a fissionable material on its own. It's only 1.11 something percent of all uranium. So you have to separate the 235 mass from the 238 in order to get pure bomb fuel, if you want to call it fuel. And that will fission if you get a critical mass. So if you, I think it's about 15 or 20 pounds of it. If you get that together, it's going to go off like a bomb. So they knew that would work because that was what they did in reactors, except they used control rods to keep the neutrons from going critical. So that was the one they were building for the first city, which they didn't determine for a while, which ended up being Hiroshima. The second bomb was a much more complex uh, bomb. It was the implosion plutonium bomb, which used plutonium as fissionable material, plutonium-239, but it was much easier to get than uranium-235. Uranium-235, it took, I think, almost two years for the reactors in um, Hanford, Washington and Oak Ridge, Tennessee, nonstop to produce about 15 or 20 pounds of this stuff. So it was very valuable and obviously was considered it was going to work. The plutonium bomb, they didn't know, but plutonium is much easier to get. You can put U-238, which is the, the part of the uranium that you don't use, and stick it in a reactor. And this is the problem with a lot of countries today. They'll bombard it with neutrons and change it into plutonium, 239, which is a fuel for atomic bomb. And so they didn't know how, though, to set it off because it, it's not simple. You can't just put it together in critical mass. It has to be squeezed into a tiny little ball to go off. And they had to have these electrodes on the outside of the bomb that would go off that would exactly squeeze it into that ball. And they didn't know if it was going to work. And, of course, when they tested it at Trinity, it did. So the second bomb was the Nagasaki bomb. That was a plutonium bomb, the same bomb that they had tested at Trinity. The first bomb, the Hiroshima bomb, was the, was the uranium bomb. The uranium bomb turned out to be about 15,000 tons of TNT equivalent, 15 kilotons. I believe the, the second bomb, the Nagasaki bomb, was about 20,000. So it was a little bit bigger yield. But those yields are nothing compared to what we've got now with hydrogen bombs. Anyway, you know, the Manhattan Project, as it was completed, the Germans surrendered or we, whatever happened with the Germans. So did we really need the bomb at that point? The reason we put it together was Germany. We were, well, we had that other war going on with Japan on the other side. And evidently it's getting very difficult. We would have had to invade the island, which would have resulted in, I guess, million casualties or more, a lot of U.S. soldiers and whatnot. So there was debate about dropping the bombs on Japan since we had put them together. And there was a, a lot of debate among scientists. Oppenheimer, if you watch the movie, is an interesting character as his teller. He knew what he was doing. He knew that this was going to change the course of humanity. He did it for his country and for fear of Germany getting it. As an aside, a lot of the scientists working on it were Jewish. They fleed Germany because of Hitler. So in some weird way, it helped us get it first. But there was a petition at the University of Chicago with the scientists, Szilard and, and Fermi and those guys, to send to the president not to drop it for moral reasons or to test it over the Tokyo Harbor, maybe 20,000 feet up, 
and let the Japanese see what we had, and then hopefully they would surrender. But that didn't happen. Oppenheimer evidently, according to Teller, had his own little committee at Los Alamos where they put the recommendation into the president to drop the bomb. It wasn't like a unanimous decision. It was gray, not black and white. And then they dropped the first one on Hiroshima. And then, of course, there's a lot of consternation as to whether that second one never needed to be dropped. Personally, I, I don't understand the second. The first one, I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't like the fact that anybody used nuclear weapons on anybody else, but I'm not a military strategist and, and I wasn't alive when that happened. But to drop another bomb within three days on another city, I don't get it. I'm sure there's a lot of military people who are going to criticize me because I don't know what was going on, but I'm just talking about for moral reasons. There's a lot of civilians who died in those two bomb blasts. They were not soldiers. They were people working in munitions factories and things, but they weren't soldiers. But anyway, when you get to the Manhattan Project, the test out of Trinity, the scientists were all out there. There was one prediction that maybe the air would catch on fire and, and the whole world would burn, burn up, which didn't happen. And, you know, the likelihood was very small of that. But there was a lot of mixed feelings when it worked because, yeah, you worked on this thing for two years. Yeah, we got it first, but then, uh-oh, what are we going to do with it? It's almost like Ben Braddock and and uh, Elaine Robinson in The Graduate when they finally went off on the bus and they, they left everybody behind. And then they're in the back of the bus and they start thinking, oh, my God, what do we do? How are we going to live our lives? We just alienated our families. and So I think there was that remorse coupled with joy. And you see it in the movie. And Oppenheimer's famous words were, I have become death, the destroyer of world. So he knew. And so, again, it wasn't like a simple yes or no. It was a gray, well, do we do it or don't we do it? And which scenario is going to kill more people? I have to say, I, I'm puzzled. I always wondered about why the second bomb was dropped myself. I've never read anything or seen anything about, was it Truman's decision or maybe it was the military's decision here in the U.S. to, decide to drop the second one? Well... There was some talk. Teller did tell me a little bit about that. He said he heard later that there was a back channel to Hirohito, and they were trying to to negotiate for peace even before the first bomb was dropped. And so he didn't know about that. And I, I remember when I asked him, I said, well, did you think we should have dropped the first bomb? And he was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I made the right decision back then. I thought it would have been better to test it over Tokyo Harbor, let him see what we had. But then he started arguing with himself. He said, well, but had that happened, maybe they wouldn't have taken it seriously. And maybe we did had to kill hundreds of thousands of people for them to take it seriously. He said, I don't know. But he's not the, I guess, back to your question, I'm doing what Teller did to me, to you, but he, he, um, He's not the warmonger that everyone made him out to be. He's an intelligent, incredibly dedicated scientist, American uh, emigre from, from Hungary, but very pro-America. And the super, which is the H-bomb, and we can get into that now, and that was his fascination. But he also knew that we weren't the only ones working on it, that, that Russia was, and it was a Cold War starting, and Russia wouldn't have been as bad as, say, Germany getting the A-bomb. But if Russia got the H-bomb, 
before we did, they would use it as intimidation. I don't think they would use it in warfare, but you know, that would be the whole switch of power. So Teller knew they were going to get it. They were working on it. And so he helped push the idea through and worked on all the science behind it. And when Germany, or excuse me, when Russia finally got the atomic bomb in 1949, they realized that Russia, this is no joke, that they were probably only a couple of years away from the super, the H-bomb. So Teller, they kind of approved a, a budget, but a lot of the scientists didn't want to do it for obvious reasons. It's like, look, the H-bomb is a thousand times more powerful than the A-bomb. Think about 15 kilotons versus 10.5 megatons or one, whatever. It's, it's on the average, uh, on the magnitude of thousands. So the devastation will be... You drop a, a medium-sized one on Philadelphia, Washington, and New York are destroyed as well. And that's what we use now. They're all in the missile silos, and, and you know, H-bombs are very small now. They've obviously been able to do it. The first H-bomb that, that Teller did was in a giant building in the Pacific. Couldn't have dropped it on anything. But then they were able to obviously make it smaller the more testing they did. And, and hydrogen fuel is pretty easy. It's deuterium, and it's heavy water it's not hard to make it or get it like the uranium uh and the plutonium while it's easier than uranium it's still not that easy so one of the things i had read before i went out to interview him was you know the, the scientific difficulty of actually making the h-bomb work because you have to have an a-bomb go off first to produce the heat to ignite the fusion now just for your listeners, fission is splitting of atoms. And when you split an atom, neutrons come out and the atom forms two other elements, beryllium and whatever, when uranium splits. But those neutrons then go out and hit other unstable uranium atoms and then they split. And then there's four and then there's eight and then there's a whole chain reaction. And just a small amount of matter being converted to energy produces a huge amount of energy. And Einstein's E equals MC squared uh, showed that, that if you had, say, one gram of matter turned into energy in ergs, you would, nine times 10 to the 20th is the divisor speed of light squared. So one gram is enough to annihilate a number of cities. You are listening to Cosmic Perspective Radio with today's guest, journalist Jim Clash. It is amazing that that little amount of matter yeah. gave that much energy. And Einstein was right. Yeah, and, and they knew that. The scientists knew it, and they're brilliant guys. So what Teller had to do was figure out a way to set off the hydrogen, which is a fusion bomb. In other words, you put hydrogen together to make helium, and when you do that, there's a, a bunch of energy released in a sort of chain reaction is the same thing as the uranium, except the opposite. You, you fuse two elements to make a new element, and... And that's, a, that's what happens on the sun. That's Basically, the sun is a giant fusion bomb, hydrogen bomb. So the problem with doing it was if you set off an A-bomb, it would destroy the assembly for the H-bomb before the H-bomb could start to fuse. Because within a split second, the whole thing blows apart, and there's not enough time for the heat to ignite the hydrogen. So he figured out with a guy named Stanislaw Ulam this um, implosion radiation way to do it. In other words, x-rays travel much faster than an explosion will blow out. So they needed to focus the x-rays from the 
um, the gamma rays, the X-rays from the atomic bomb into the container of hydrogen and get it to start fusing before the assembly blew up. And so that was the beautiful or unbeautiful answer to the question. And then they were able to do that. And so they were able to ignite the hydrogen with the X-rays produced from the, the atomic bomb. And so a lot of people didn't think it would work. And a lot of scientists didn't want it to work. And, you know, it would have been great if it didn't work and nobody could do it. Because now what we've got is an arsenal of weapons that will destroy the world if even a small amount of them go off. I want to get back to Trinity for a second because Teller, and we talked about this, his teacher in Germany when he was young was a guy named Werner Heisenberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And there's been a lot of talk about whether Heisenberg didn't do the bomb for Hitler because he knew if Germany got it first, the world was pretty much over, at least the free world. So I asked Teller if he thought that Warren Heisenberg stalled Germany's efforts, misled the scientists so that Hitler wouldn't get the bomb. And he basically answered the question without answering, but he said Heisenberg was a great scientist. He knew about the bomb. He could have done the bomb. Uh, he was funny. He was whatever, but he was a, a staunch anti-Nazi. So it seems to me that probably Heisenberg did stall. I think he put the scientists in the wrong directions because he knew. Now, that was a great danger to him because if Hitler was found out, you know, it's, it's over, man, you know. And it was hard because those scientists weren't dumb working for Germany. So he had to be pretty clever. And then Teller told me that later on, uh, after the war, they, they took a bunch of the German scientists and they brought them to England and put them in some barracks for a couple of weeks and they bugged the barracks. And these, these scientists didn't know they were bugged. And they were all talking like when the bomb went off at Hiroshima, they, what did those crazy Americans do? Drop a reactor on? <laughs> so by the way they reacted, it was almost as if they were so far behind, they didn't even understand what we had done. It was real. So Teller came out on that, I think, saying that Heisenberg probably did mislead the German scientists to all of our benefit. So that's a little aside, which I think is important. And in fact, they even wrote a play about it called Copenhagen or something many years ago, which won some kind of an award on Broadway about conversations with Heisenberg and Niels Bohr, another great physicist. So the interview with Teller, two hours, uh, we talked about President Truman, we talked about Ronald Reagan and the Star Wars, you know, the anti-missile defense system that Reagan wanted to do, that Teller backed. We talked about Einstein. We talked about the great science minds of the 20th century, which actually turned into be a pretty funny exchange between me and Teller. What's interesting about Teller in your article is take on Oppenheimer, Einstein, Harry Truman. He gave his feelings about them. And Oppenheimer, as you said, they didn't see eye to eye. And not only was there this uh, this unity, but there was this competition, I think, in sense, between people's ideas at the time as well. Even Heisenberg uh, and Einstein didn't get along. They had different ideas. So, Yeah, it's kind of like herding cats. They're all like in their own little world, and they are competitive, and, and they all do have strong ideas. And I think one of the great things about Oppenheimer was he was able to to put them in a room and let them whatever, and then he would listen and figure out, okay, he wouldn't say anything, but he would say, okay, these are the things that have to be solved. And But yeah, I mean, Teller was very vocal about some of those people you mentioned. He 
he talked a little about Einstein and said he thought that uh, Einstein was way over the hill by the time he had met him and didn't really do anything after he was 30 years old. But the things he did before he was 30, he said he'd have to put Einstein on the list of the five great science minds of the 20th century. Despite my misgivings about Einstein later in life, I would grudgingly have to put him on the list. Oh my God, really? In terms of the other scientists, Johnny von Neumann was one of his fellow Hungarians, and he had helped develop the um, modern-day computer, the hardwired computers back in the, the 50s You know that IBM was producing. And I don't understand enough about that to know what he did, but he made, the, I guess, the computer programmable. You could make it more like a human, think more like a human, but I think he might have won a Nobel Prize. So he put Johnny von Neumann on the list, and then uh, his other, uh, Leo Szilard, who, if you read some of the books, he came up with the whole idea of a, a bomb walking across the street from one corner to the other, knowing about nuclear fission. And he worked with uh, at the University of Chicago, where they were also doing research into fission. And he was at Los Alamos. Who else did he put on the list? Oh, Werner Heisenberg, his teacher, his ex-teacher, uh, Niels Bohr, who, of course, was the teacher of Heisenberg and who uh, he said made life difficult for Heisenberg later in, in his life because I guess he had tried to negotiate something where the Germans and the United States would not work on the bomb and agree not to work on the bomb. And uh, I guess Heisenberg or somebody, uh, well, as Heisenberg wanted to, to, to do that, that they wouldn't work on the bomb, make a, an agreement between the two countries, even during the war. And uh, Bohr didn't like that idea, and he thought that Heisenberg was basically giving the idea, you know. So, so yeah, he said, I'll put him on the list. Of course, Niels Bohr, you know, I mean, that's, you know, it's like Einstein or something. And I remember I said, well, would you put your own name on that list, Dr. Teller? And he looked at me and he said, I have to leave some job for you to do. And I thought that was hysterical. Obviously, yes, put me on, but... He made it in a funny way. So, you know, he has a sense of humor. But uh, but yeah, he he talked about all those people separately, but not to the depth he talked about Oppenheimer. He felt that Oppenheimer was somewhat duplicitous and that when the bomb went off to the press, he said, I am death, the destroyer of worlds, in kind of a way that maybe we shouldn't have done this. But then behind everybody's back, he made the recommendation to uh, the president to drop it. And again, I, I take everything that Teller said about Oppenheimer with a bit of a grain of salt because there's a rivalry there, there's a jealousy there, and also there was, um, honestly, Oppenheimer had some questionable roots back in his day, as you'll see in the movie if you see it, that he, was, he wasn't a communist per se, but he did have some involvement with the Communist Party. I think his first wife was a Communist Party member. Uh, there was a woman he was, I think, having an affair with who was, was a communist. And he used to go to communist meetings, and, but he never joined the party. But that all came back to haunt him later in life. Now, remember, they made him director of Los Alamos. They knew all that stuff, but they gave it to him anyway. So later on, when they wanted to nail him, they used it all against him. And so Teller was, was more of a, I wouldn't say a Republican per se, in that he was more straight by the board, commies, bad guys, that kind of thing. I remember we talked a little about the H bomb, and I said, "Well, how did you feel when it, you know, when it went off?" Because he was at Hoover 
in California and he saw the shockwave on his seismograph come through from the Pacific Ocean. So he knew it had worked. He said, well, you know, I worked on it. When, when something happens, you like it, you know? So anyway, the Oppenheimer thing, Oppenheimer was really against the H-bomb. And a lot of scientists were because they didn't understand that the Russians could get it and would get it. And sure enough, one year after uh, we tested our first bomb, they tested an H-bomb. And Teller's reaction to me was, if we wouldn't have gotten it, we'd all be talking in Russian. So his motives to me were for the country, for democracy, to protect the world, this and that. Who knows what they really were? I'm sure part of it was competing. I want to make a bomb bigger than you know, Oppenheimer did or something. But Teller's a complicated guy. You can see that with my interview. And so was Oppenheimer. And if you see, see the movie, you'll see that. I did see the movie, yeah. And in the past, I've read about all these people, but never saw it in the movie. And then they had these documentaries. And, and as you said, he wasn't the guy that was bright enough not that he wasn't brilliant, but to do it, he was the guy that can get everybody else together to do it. Teller even said that as well. And then Teller pretty much predicted everything he said, that the Russians were going to get it soon after. Even uh, Hitler was also toying with not just the atomic bomb, but the hydrogen bomb at the same time. He's using the heavy water to hydrogen three water mm -hmm. to, to try to do it. So in a way, is somewhat of a visionary. Yeah. I would say Teller was more of a seer. Uh, and again, I don't know. I think his motives were probably conflicted in that he wanted this thing to work because he knew how to make it. And he worked on it until it, he was able to do it. And a lot of scientists said it couldn't be done. And a lot of scientists didn't want it to be done. And they convinced the government for a long time not to pursue the super, the H-bomb. And then finally, when Russia got the A-bomb in 49, which was four years after we had it, they realized that wow, they can now they can build an H-bomb because they've got an A-bomb to set it off and they're probably working on. And who knows with the spies, there was that Fuchs spy, you know, Los Alamos, who turned a lot of the fission stuff over to, to the Russians. So I would say I agree with you in that Teller was kind of a visionary. Um, I think he's a little bit maligned more than he should be. As far as Oppenheimer and, and the communist stuff, yeah, Groves knew. He met him and he knew that he had this ability, innate ability, to put people together and manage. He was a great scientist and later did some work they found on, I uh, can't remember what it was, something radio waves. He could have won the Nobel with his papers on it. But, you know, he was more of a manager and he was able to take all the strengths of these people and put them together to do what they had to do in two years. So, as you say, that was his strength. And I don't know if anyone else could have done it. Because the science, they're all egos, big time. And I mean, you have all these different departments. Think about it. They, there was a whole munitions area for the plutonium bomb that they had to figure out how to actually take this theory of imploding that plutonium into a little ball. How do you do that? You know, so they, they did a lot of testing with explosions and dynamite to, to make it all work with pipes instead of plutonium. And that had to be managed. And you had all these theoretical physicists who were disagreeing, well, is the world going to burn? You know, was... <laughs> and then they're all very, very, um, they're like the Explorers Club. Everybody is, is uh, <laughs> they think they're right and, and they have the story to tell. And then he had to manage the families there and the fact that they were out in the desert and he did it. So he was America's hero and he, uh, 
he was a huge hero after that. He was on the cover of Life magazine and maybe Time. And and America loves to tear their heroes down later. And at the end, I guess he really upset Louis Strauss, the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, embarrassed them at some sort of a event. And, and this guy had a long memory. And so he set Teller up to take him down at the McCarthy trials. And in the movie, you see pretty graphically what they do to him. And it's not right, but they do it. And Teller, and I asked him about it, his testimony, it, he didn't really say Teller was a communist. And if you read carefully, I don't have the interview in front of me. He just said something like, I don't think he was a communist. He was not a member of the Communist Party. However, his first wife was a, you know, he was whatever of a communist and, and his associations early in life. He said, I want someone in that position, security clearance, that I understand better and therefore can trust more. And that testimony helped seal the, the deal on, on Oppenheimer to get his security clearance revoked. And honestly, Einstein told Oppenheimer, just don't pursue it, let it go. Uh, but Oppenheimer couldn't do that. And so he ended up really getting disgraced, at least in, in terms of the McCarthy trials in the public. And so it broke him. And I think he was mistreated for what he did in the end. Teller, I, I couldn't get him to admit that. He, what did he say? I said something like, so you feel pretty good looking back at your life. And he said, well, he said, I do not think I'm going to go to heaven. I don't think I'm going to hell. I will stay in purgatory for a while, but not too long. Something, you know, funny, probably in, intimating that you'll go to heaven eventually. And he said, I, I wish people would think back on me and look at me as not someone who created this horrible thing and also had been a bad guy to Oppenheimer or something. So he was very cognizant of some of the things that people thought about him after he had done his things. I asked him if he believed in God. And he said, I am not talking about things I do not understand. And I said, well, do you go to church? He went, no. <laughs> so, you know, he was kind of good at answering questions without answering them. Witty, incredibly a witty person, you know. It seemed, it seemed like he had incredible wit. Yeah, well, we talked a little bit about, he made an atomic alphabet once. And, and he said, A is for Adam. It's so small, no one has ever seen it at all. B is for bombs today they're much bigger so we shouldn't be so fast on the trigger and he asked me what is s and i said i don't know is that safety and he said no s is secrets he said you you can keep them forever unless there are other people who are clever which russians were and these other countries who managed to get the bomb i would like to say though that the thing that i think saved us in terms of terrorists and rogue countries getting the atomic bomb there's enough plutonium on the black market to have it. You know, the collapse of Russia, I'm, I'm sure a lot of that stuff went missing for money. And, but the detonation device is still so complicated with the plutonium that they don't know how to do it. Now, if they got the detonation devices, then you could have a city that's held hostage for an atomic bomb or something. And, and eventually, probably that will happen. But so far, that really difficult implosion method has saved us from a lot of things that shouldn't happen to the world and anybody who understands science and Teller was really into like how we're in an anti-science era and in the old days it would be you know we discover something and we're excited and we 
see how we can use it you know, to our advantage. And sometimes you discover things that have two sides to them. Atomic energy, you can use it for reactors for great purposes, but you can also build a bomb with it, radioactive. So he said, we're more afraid of, of what bad part of it is than what we can do with a good part. And he said, that's the, the biggest danger to the United States at that point. And this was 24 years ago that uh, we weren't embracing scientific discoveries. And I can understand they were against the H-bomb because it's a bad thing and nuclear bombs in, in general and, and cloning. He talked to me about cloning. He asked me what I thought and I said, I don't know. He said, well, look, cloning is an old thing. It's been, it's been around since the 30s. The thing that's new is the potential of cloning a mammal. And then he used an example of a woman who had given birth to a child and the child was dying and she couldn't have another child. Why shouldn't we clone the child so that she would have a son or a daughter to raise? You know, just he was provocative in his questions. He, they weren't easy. And honestly, the one thing I, I said at the beginning of this interview, I wore a suit. When I left that place, that suit was soaking wet all the way through to the wool part. I sweat so much in that interview because of the questions he asked. And it was almost like driving a race car. You, you have to concentrate so much that you don't have time for anything else. And that two hours went by like that. Just an amazing individual to be able to have the opportunity that you had to, uh, to interview Teller. As you and I have said in the past, Jim, when we interview someone, this is history. And I appreciate you sharing this time in history with us. This may be a part of history that people don't know about at all. Well, there's a lot that the younger generation doesn't know. And that's one of the reasons I think the Oppenheimer movie is good. What bothers me is you see a movie like Barbie and then Oppenheimer and, and when maybe Barbie gets more money at the box office, it's nuts. But, you know, they need to understand the seriousness of what we developed back in the 40s, what we did to Japan, what we have out there in terms of destroying the world. There's only one question I wish I'd asked Teller and I didn't. Uh, UFOs. I wish I'd asked him about UFOs. If I could substitute a question, I mean, we talked about Reagan's Star Wars and whether it would have ever worked. And, you know, you can read that in the interview. Your readers can read it in the interview. I don't want to waste time here. But I wish that I would ask him that question to see what he would have said about it. I don't know. That I have no idea what he would have said. Yeah, certainly a very interesting guy. Yeah. And he was, look, he was gruff. He's no nonsense, but he could have a sense of humor at the same time. And he could charm you. And I would say of all the interviews I've done in my life, and I said this before, that one means the most to me because I performed at my highest level, even though it was 24 years ago. It's amazing what you can do when you have to. No one's ever challenged me that much in an interview. And, you know, as you say, it's history. So I was able, I think, a little bit to contribute to history by getting him to say things because he was history. And uh, in fact, the reason that the article ran again was because of the Oppenheimer movie. And, you know, I thought about it. I said, God, I, where's that damn interview? And then I found it was in my book way back when. And I didn't even have a copy of it. It wasn't online. I had to go buy the book and then copy the interview to get it back, talk to you know my editors and just say, this is important. This needs to go up.
and it will do well because of you know obviously the topic and so i'm so happy to get it out there it's gotten a lot of attention and it is history so i would encourage your readers to read it thanks jim so much for being with us today on cosmic perspective radio and i I understand that by the time the show airs, you are actually going to be interviewing a survivor from Hiroshima. Is that correct? Yes. So a side project is there are two Oppenheimer movies. The first one, the big one by um, Chris uh, Nolan is the theatrical three-hour version with Downey Jr. and a lot of famous actors. And it's a theatrical movie, but it's pretty accurate. The other one is an NBC produced documentary called Oppenheimer to end all wars or something. And they pitched me a story about the uh, company that's done some of the animation called Creative Mammals. And I said, okay, I watched it, the, the movie, the NBC movie, and, and there was a survivor from Hiroshima in it, and she spoke English. And I said, if you can get me an interview with her, I'm interested. So they did. They went out and they got me this interview, and I'll do it soon. And um, I'm, again, just like with Nagasaki Survivor, I'm a little nervous about it. Who knows what she's going to say? And she's been asked the question a million times. But yeah, I'm going to do that. And then I'm also going to interview the director of the smaller Oppenheimer film, Chris Castle, and we'll see what they say. But it was, I think it was pretty good. I would recommend it. I think you can stream it on Peacock or something. I don't know. I don't get those services. But they did debut it on MSNBC, and I did see it when they did that. So hopefully, um, then I'll have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. Survivor from both cities, visits to both cities, Trinity. Jim, where can our listeners learn more about your articles and interviews? Well, I think the easiest way is um, if you Google Jim Clash and then Forbes, and then what will happen is you'll there'll be a link to my site, which is where they put all my stories in order of publication. And there's probably five or 600 stories in there. Or if you want to say Nagasaki Survivor, you just Google Jim Clash Nagasaki and you'll find it. Well, I think that was 2018 or something. Trinity, same thing. The Teller piece, though, was very recent. They can find that. In, I think it was published. Yeah, it was published in July. So, yeah, they can do that. And uh, as you know, I'm an adventure writer, so there are a lot of other stories there, too. Maybe not as serious, but certainly a lot of fun. Yes, the... Topics we usually discuss are much more upbeat than this, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing this part of history with us today, as sad as it is. Thanks very much for being with us today, Jim. Yeah, thank you for having me on for a whole show to talk about something like this. It's, it's serious and it is history. Thank you, Eddie. Since our interview, Jim has had the opportunity to interview the Hiroshima survivor. If you'd like more information on the article, you can Google Jim Clash, Forbes, and Hiroshima Survivor. The next Cosmic Perspective radio broadcast will be on September 24th from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. My guest will be Goddard Space Flight Center Senior Astronomer, Dr. Michelle Thaler. But I don't see you by September 24th, wishing everyone more peace, love, and happiness in their lives. Clear skies. 